0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jin Li from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Professor Takeshi Watanabe with us to talk about his new book, Flowering Tales, Women Exercising History in Han Japan, published by Harvard University Asian Center last year. Professor Watanabe is currently teaching and researching about pre-modern Japan at uh, Westland University. In this book, Dr. Watanabe looks into uh, two of Japan's classical literary works, The Tales of Genji, uh, or Genji Monogatari, and A Tale of Flowering Fortunes, Ega Monogatari, to examine how the former influenced the latter to tell stories of politically marginalized figures of medieval Japan. So welcome Professor Watanabe, thank you so much for joining us in New Books on Japanese Studies today.
0: Thank you for having me, it's my pleasure.
1: Um, I know you've listened to this already, but a few weeks ago I actually talked to Dr. Ellen Breitweil on this channel, whose new book also looks at connections between literature and history of medieval Japan, so I thought I'd begin with the same question here. Um, do you consider yourself a literary scholar or a historian?
0: That's a very good question. And sometimes I think, um, I, I don't know myself. Uh, in fact, I have taught in the history department at Connecticut College. And when I was teaching there, I, uh, you know, I, I sometimes did feel like I, I maybe I, that I was an interloper. Uh, My degree and my studies are actually, were in literature, uh, but I do study the past. And in a very broad sense, anybody who studies the past is a historian in some ways. And I remember uh, my chair saying that uh, when I was teaching at Connecticut College. Um, That said, though, I'm finding that I'm less and less interested necessarily in what truly happened or trying to figure out what truly happened. And I'm more interested in how people negotiate with the past and how they render it and what the effects are of certain representations and how people remember the past, which may not necessarily be what exactly happened in the past. So I would consider myself more of a scholar of literature maybe a cultural historian, and that I'm also interested not just in uh, literature, but also in visual works. And also uh, I'm getting more and more into uh, food and food practices. So all the different artistic, creative ways that people engage with self-representation.
1: Well, That's interesting. Uh, I guess that's one... Price we have to pay doing interdisciplinary work mm. is to face uh, this identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. you brought up something really important that I want to come back to later, which is the, the this um, this sort of uh, boundary between our interdisciplinary work and the settings in institutions, mm. um, yes. for disciplines. So I guess I'll save that for the last. Yes, Um,
0: let's, (laughs) yes, Yes, we can talk more about it.
1: Yes. Um, How did you become interested in medieval Japanese literature and history?
0: Well, um, everybody has a a rather personal story I think that relates to how they got to where we are. Um, As my name reveals, I am of Japanese ancestry. Um, I was born in the States but um, when I was still a baby my parents moved back to japan uh, and um i always considered myself and when i was six my parents and i moved to the u.s again so my first memories were of japan and at a fairly young age i felt displaced involuntarily and and i think you know, this experience or such experiences are not that unusual, but they do vary in how they affect one. And for me, I always felt that I needed to uh, prove my Japanese-ness, I think, for lack of a better term. And so even though I was more interested in English literature and Victorian novels, for example, during undergraduate years, I did feel that I had to study Japanese. I, I was speaking Japanese at home, but I never wrote it or, or really read it too much when I was in school. And, uh, when I was an undergrad, um, I became, I was majoring in comparative literature and I wanted to work more in Japanese literature. And I met uh, my advisor who ended up being my graduate advisor as well, Edward Kaimans And, um, he was a very important mentor to me. And I think a lot of times the history of where, where we are, the history of where we are today is so dependent on the people we meet, right? And the kinds of connections and relationships uh, that arise. And he really uh, was a very important mentor for me. And so I, even though I kept on wanting to do more with Western European literature, I became more and more interested in classical Japanese literature. And and I do have to admit, again, part of the reason why was I felt that I needed to prove myself. And I felt that if I could do classical Japanese literature, I could uh, tell my grandparents or my cousins that I'm actually proficient in Japanese. So it became this kind of challenge for myself. And I don't, you know, now looking back, I don't think my grandparents really cared or that my cousins really would have cared. Uh, but I, I it, became, it became a challenge for me. And uh, and if I could read something like the Tell Genji, which is, of course, as you know, one of the most, the masterpieces of Japanese classical literature, I felt that I would, I would have, I, I would, that became a, a, a marker for myself of having reached a certain place in my study of Japanese. And so that that was a motivation of mine, and uh, that led me to graduate work in pre-modern Japanese literature and to where I am now.
1: Well, wow, it, it would seem like that too. you outdid yourself, right? <laughs> with your book proving to the entire world how you can analyze these classical Japanese works.
0: Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so to, to dive in the book, um, you focus on the tale of Genji and the tale of flowering fortunes. Now, in most history textbooks of Japanese literature, Um, The former is often marked as the first ever Japanese novel, which also happened to be written by a female author, while the latter is often described as a fictionalized history of one of the most powerful families, the the Fujiwara family of medieval Japan. They seem to belong to very different categories. Mm -hmm. So why did you choose these two works, and how do they connect in your book?
0: Yeah, well, the reception history is something that we could talk about, but I'm I'm not going to go there immediately. I think mo- that, first of all, though, these works are very, I try to show, very interrelated. A- and in fact, I argue that Eiga Monogatari, Tale of Flying Fortunes, is one of the earliest responses, sur- earliest surviving responses we have to Genji Monogatari. Part of the problem, though, is that Eiga does ne- never really explicitly says that it's written from the influence of Genji. That, that connection is never made explicit. But as you may know, there is a very famous exposition, the so-called uh, Defense of the Monogatari, or the Monogatari-ron in the Hotaru, Fireflies chapter of Genji Monogatari. and um, in that section, Genji, the character, uh, defends the monogatari uh, in a roundabout way. First, he does joke and, and make poke fun of Tamakazura, who's reading a monogatari about how they're so frivolous and you know they're they're just entertainment. But then he goes on with, to pivot and to say that actually the monogatari is almost the true history, or conveys things that are otherwise inexpressible or otherwise left out of the official histories. And it's this, I think, dif- defense of the monogatari that inspired the author or the authors of Ega monogatari to say, to stop, to think, oh, well, we, that there is room and the possibility of using the language of the monogatari, of genji monogatari, to narrate a history. And uh, just to back up and to give some background at this time in the Heian period, the official histories were written in literary Chinese and in the hands of men. And women uh, did have kana and were writing. And and there were monogatari and there were nikki diaries and records that women kept, but they weren't really official histories in that, it, neither in the language nor in the content. And, the, and by that, I mean, the, the, if you look at what is usually considered history, they're either official histories about reigns of emperors and things that happened, but they're not necessarily the everyday life of the aristocrats that we see in the monogatari or the diaries of the women of the time. So the Ega monogatari was took that language of what i say is fiction but actually genji is also very historical and we can i can talk about that a little bit further but it uses that narrative style of a chronological unfolding of the past and uses that language to narrate the past in a very in a, in a completely new way that was unprecedented in the vernacular
1: so now that you mentioned the hotaru the firefly chapter um I remember taking a course on on the tale of genji and uh, the I, I was reading an article talking about the whole meaning of monogatari to mm-hmm. tell mm-hmm. about things mm-hmm. um and when I was reading your book I thought oh to tell about things that sounds really like is theories on history to mm-hmm. to talk about to tell mm-hmm. about things as they were mm-hmm. um but um as it's usually uh divided monogatari and rekishi or i don't i don't know how to <laughs> translate monogatari anymore but people don't usually consider it history right yes yeah so so what are your thoughts on this uh whole Um, difference distinction between I guess fiction or narratives and history yes quote-unquote history yeah
0: yeah so my interpretation of it, 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 it and there are others and it's not without controversy but I was inspired by Fuji Sadakazu and also earlier uh folklorists, uh, such as Origuchi Shinobu, and again, um, there, there's quite a bit of controversy, I should admit, about how I'm understanding the monogatari, but uh, there, on the one hand, there are fudu monogatari, there are these kinds of, um, what, what Genji was alluding to, uh, monogatari such as taketori monogatari, the tale of the bamboo cutter which is one of the oldest surviving monogatari, and it's about, you know, the bamboo, um, the moon princess and the bamboo, and it's a lot of supernatural things happening, and it's a rather simplistic tale, right? Very, almost a fairy tale. Um, and uh, there's also uh, Utsuho Monogatari, the tale of the hollow tree, and, and they, there's a lot of supernatural happenings, not so psychological, right? Not not as wrought and as, as psychological as Genji Monogatari. A- and admittedly, Genji took this genre into a completely new direction, and I think into unprecedented uh, depths. And that's why it, it's understood to be such a masterpiece. But I would say that there's also an earlier kind of understanding of Monogatari that I'm alluding to, and that's this the the um, the, the rather vague, <laughs> amorphous understanding of mono, things, right? That encompassed both um, things of this world, rather mundane things, but also supernatural things, right? That couldn't really be expressed. And so even today in modern Japanese, we have a, a wide range of things that uh, mono encompasses. And, I, and, and to, to uh, just give you an example, I do talk about mononoke, right? The spirit of things. And the mono there is also alluding to spirits in the spiritual world. And and these are things that are otherwise uh, taboo to articulate, to say explicitly. And we can talk about mononoke later too. And I think we'll get there uh, later today. Um, But if we understand mono to be of that spiritual dimension, the katari could be the the utterances of the mono or things that speak to that spiritual world and so my understanding of monogatari and eiga monogatari is is one a very explicit tie to genji monogatari and the debt eiga o to genji and its narration of the past in chronicle form but i also understand eiga monogatari to be almost this um the 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 um, the uh, the stories narr- narration of the dead um, of from the spiritual world from the past that is trying to make itself heard and a way of grappling with that past for very specific ends in the present.
1: Yeah, that's very well said. Fascinating. Um... I, I get uh the impression from your book that there are two cons- key concepts um in, in talking about the, the the trans um what's the word? The 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 intersection between literature and history. Um so you have genealogy and effective history. Um could you unpack these two concepts for us? Hmm. First with genealogy, how is it situated in these two works and a book?
0: Yeah. Well, on the one hand, I use gene- genealogy, or I use this term because I want to refer to um, the conventional understanding of genealogy, of lineages, of biological lineages. Uh, and as you know, in the Heian period, genealogies were terribly important. You know, They determined uh, your rank, uh, your identity, uh, what promotions you can get. Uh, they they really dictated your place in society, and it was almost inescapable and and very rigid. Although marriages could be arranged, and you uh, and, and births happened and deaths happened, and so there were disruptions, I would say, to genealogies and um, and and your rank. But th- and, and so there that that was one system that was the foundation of Heian society. Uh, but in my book, I'm also interested in what I call figural genealogies. And by figure, I'm, I'm pointing to people, to characters, both historical and fictional. And so another intersection between Genji and Ega that I talk about is how fiction, or namely specifically Genji, and its fictional characters can filter or affect the way we even see ourselves and other people and how we remember them. And so uh, for example uh, Fujiwara no Michinaga, the historical figure in Ega, I think, is sometimes remembered through echoes or connections with Genji Monogatari, the, the character of Genji in Genji Monogatari. Or there are lots of other figures, right, uh, such as Korechika, Fujiwara no Korechika, who was the younger sister of Empress Teishi. Now there are a lot of figures and I don't want to um, uh, evoke them, too, too many of them, because it can get really confusing, but there are these webs of people that are getting evoked to characterize and flesh out historical figures in Ega Monogatari. Because I think on the one hand, right, the authors of Ega Monogatari didn't necessarily know every single person in this, you know, centuries worth of history. So what happened is that I think even today too, the way we remember is sometimes very jumbled. And we may remember people or things or occasions through other kinds of memory, not all of which really happened, right? I think there may be a lot of times when we actually see a situation or experience something through a movie that we watched or through narrative fiction that may have enthralled us when we were young. And we project ourselves and our experiences through that lens. And these uh, kinds of connections and associations are what I'm calling figural genealogies. And that they are almost necessary in this world and society because the biological connections and those lineages were so politically fraught. And, and, and almost, I would say, tearing, tearing itself apart. And I say that because in this world, in the Heian court society that we're talking about, uh, we often have very bitter uh, rivalries between even siblings, between cousins, uh, and, and, and so that they, they, they are, even though they are very close relatives with one another, they're forced to politically battle with one another. And in place of those blood kinship, uh, in place of biological connections, these figural genealogies become very important for connecting with people, not just for the sake of remembering and, and, and um, shaping our memories, but also for constructing society.
1: And what about affective history? Um, is it like a sort of reflection of this uh, Figaro genealogy?
0: Yes, yeah, yes, they're connected. But the effective history part is more of my attempt to describe what Ega does and what, the, and what, what it achieves. And, and uh, referring back to what I said um, when I was describing myself as perhaps more of a scholar of literature, um, I'm interested in the way that Ega evokes the past for certain effects, and as I can explain a little further later, it, it, one of the effects that I see from, for example, the figural genealogies is a certain evocation of empathy and connection between people who are otherwise not related and may not have even known each other. And those kinds, that kind of rendition of the past is what I call affective history or history that moves people. And and I don't I do want to clarify that I don't think that Ega is, Monogatari is the only only work or is the first one or is the most important example of this. And in fact, I, I, I would like to try to get people to think more about um, my conceptualization of affective history. Uh, which I think is, is something that we're surrounded by. It's mainly, it's mainly this idea that there's a way of rendering the past that evokes emotions and I tend to, to also be more aware and sensitive to those kinds of emotions uh, that that rendition evokes in us. And that can encompass things like propaganda, right? And, and, and there are, I think, uh, genuine arguments to be made Uh, about Eiga in that it was a kind of propaganda, uh, propagandistic history. And I'm not, you know, whether that's right or wrong is not really what I want to get into at this point. But even today, right, there's often, at, at least maybe in high school, although I hope in colleges we don't teach this, but there is a way in which I think we understand history to be very cut and dry and either right or wrong or true or false but my this uh, this idea of affective history is also trying to uh move away from that understanding of history as fat, as purely factual but thinking of the effects or affect that history can evoke.
1: Wow, now you just sound more like a historian. <laughs> yeah and when I was reading the book I thought it was just so brilliant that uh, with these two concepts, you were able to articulate um, the the complex issues between the the, the the boundary, or maybe the lack of, between literature and history mm-hmm. in medieval Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in your book, you give a lot of attention to politically marginalized figures, such as women. Um, in the case of the Tale of Genji, even though it was written by a female author, as the title indicates it's about a male figure, uh, and with A Tale of Flowering Fortunes, the spotlight is mostly given to the male members of the Fujiwara family because, well, female just weren't important back then. Why did you choose women as the angle of your discussion?
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I I think your point is well taken. Uh, that, uh, uh, but in in reading the tale of Genji, I think m- most people realize that even though Genji is the central hero, uh, the story is actually more about the women that. Um, struggle with with genji in their lives and and the the women you could argue I I suppose too that the women are manifestations of genji and help illuminate him as a character but i would also say that in ega monogatari that I, and I don't have uh, I, I, this. Is, I know, I, I'm not a data-driven scholar, although there are some people who who, who are uh, doing more and more of this kind of work. I but I would say that my impression is that even though there's um, there are readings of Eiga that posit that it's about Fujiwara no Michinaga, but it is about his family, and I would say it's about actually his female his daughters, and it's a, it, and a lot of the narrative is dominated by women. And in some ways, it's the history of the rear court or the inner court or the history of uh, seduction in many ways, of, of, of who it gets to bear the emperor's children, who and who, who gets to um, become the mother of the nation. And so um, there are uh, many chapters such as Toribeno, one of the earlier chapters in Ega Monolatari that are centered explicitly on uh, female figures such as Empress Teishi, the patron of Seishonaron. So there is an intense, I think, uh, attention given to uh, female figures. And I argue, as you noted, uh, especially on marginalized female figures and I do believe that one of the main motivations for the writing of Eganwono Atari was to placate uh, the spirits of these marginalized, very high-ranking women. But we can return to that point later too. I do want to say also this, the, the reason, the other perhaps rather obvious reason I also uh, deal uh, explicitly with women and, and, and my project and my book is configured as such is because the language of these works the, of ega is the vernacular is kana which uh is associated with women now i i do try to push back on the conventional binary of onnade and like this this idea that you know men were writing in chinese uh women were writing in japanese and i think there was a little more fluidity than people realize and that uh, and I think I hope my work pushes back on a simplistic understanding of this binary uh, of history and fiction as well. But I would also just say that the narrator, speaking in the vernacular, writing in the vernacular, communicating in the vernacular, is a distinctly female voice. And so, um, in in some ways, I argue that this is one of the earliest histories not just in the vernacular, but a, a, a woman's history in in, in in the Japanese record.
1: That's a really good point. And since you mentioned um, spirit, so one theme of this book is spirit, which sounds more like fiction to me than history. But uh, can you talk about how the examination of narratives about spirit fits in the whole argument of your book?
0: Yeah, so this is what I was referring to when I was talking about placation. And by spirits, I I, I I would like to clarify that I'm talking about uh, mononoke or uh, spirit possession and the spirits that drive spirit possession. So just to give some background, uh, in this period, uh, there were illnesses, there were epidemics, um, rather like the one we are experiencing right now. and. Um, People often understood illnesses, you know, there were physical ailments uh, in Heian, Japan. There were medical texts and there were physical ailments. And, and so not all illnesses were understood in terms of supernatural phenomena. But there was also when, when all else failed or when when the victim was particularly or when the ill uh, was a particularly high ranking person. and he or she was known to have rivals or uh, been perhaps in a position of uh, of rivalry, of competition, um, then uh, there were always suspicions of spirit possession. Uh, and the most famous spirit possession, ironically, is from Genji Monogatari and Lady Rokujo's possession and um, killing of yugao in in Genji, right? But that, um, and and that's why perhaps you also find that the evocation of spirits uh, tends to be a more literary uh, trope. But let's not forget that spirit possessions were were historically uh, prominent and were understood to be Mm, I don't know, factual is is the right word, but were were understood to be valid illnesses, right? Things that that were not fan, fanciful or supernatural, superstitious, and um, but they weren't random either, right? That people had to the that people had to the the identification of spirit possession was a communal, uh, social phenomenon because. What, a person couldn't suddenly just come up with a, with an accusation and say, oh, this spirit of so-and-so is possessing this person. There had to be logic there that people accepted. Um, and so the exorcist would be uh, called upon, and then you would have perhaps Buddhist monks uh, offer chants, dharani spells to try to get the spirit out. And the spirit would then speak through a medium, and there would be placation, and there would be this exorcism, right? So, as you see in the title of my book, right, uh, Women Exercising History in Heian, Japan, one of my major arguments is that this book, Ega, uh, is this attempt to exorcise demons or spirit, and not necessarily demons, I, I, let me correct that. Of, of angry, embittered spirits that are possessing the the victors, so to speak, the people who won, Michinaga's daughters, for example, and that they needed to be uh, propitiated. They needed to be appeased. And one way to do that is actually to tell their version of the story. I mean, there's a lot of spells that happen, but one of, the, I think, the major treatments and the cure consisted of hearing these voices, of getting the spirits into the medium and hearing what they have to say and offering sympathy. And so I argue that Ega Monogatari is actually a, a virtual rendition of this exorcism, of this treatment for spirit possessions. And there are quite a number of actually spirit possessions that are mentioned in Ega Monogatari, and it and I argue that Ega Monogatari itself is very much uh, a medium, the narrator acting as a medium, articulating the stories of the marginalized women who lost in the competition. Uh, namely with Michinaga's daughters and Michinaga's language.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting and um uh, it's I guess originally it's it's this uh, very complicated problem with um well first of all the so-called superstition and how it was recorded, how it was textualized and uh how to contextualize it its historical background, so that that's really fascinating. But as you mentioned in the book, um, in, in the beginning, this uh, you you link, um, these two works. One is a not novel or work of literature or or narrative, with a work of historical fiction, or history, literary history, lit history of. Mm. I don't even know how to put it anymore. But so this connection between these two works is often overlooked, not only in modern day scholarship, but also for readers in the past. Why do you think th- that this happened? And um, how do you, in, in this book, uh, make this connection in a way that's... that that's um, Well... How do you link the two books?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it it, it, it is overlooked to a certain degree, but I do have to um, admit that I don't think it was initially overlooked at all. And in fact, it may have been almost too obvious. In other words, I think that the historical dimensions of Genji were much more prominent in the eyes of medieval readers uh, and Ega Monogatari's debts to Genji were probably much more obvious to uh, medieval readers as well. And in fact, um, in Japanese scholarship, and you have uh, 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 even in the Meiji period, there are a lot of scholars that actually make this connection between Genji and Ega. So it's it's it. The neglect may actually be more that it was so obvious that people didn't really. Bother to mention, and I think in the Meiji period and, and maybe in the early post-war, it was also, there was, I think, more interest in looking at Genji monogatari and understanding how it could be and was the for, for world's first novel, right? I think there was a lot of uh, at stake in trying to claim Genji's place in world literature and trying to place Japanese literature in this context. And so what happened there was that the connection to historical fiction, to a work like Ega, which is just so difficult for us to, I think, access because there are just so many people, characters, and there's not a lot of narrative tension. It's basically in chronicle form. And so it's, it's, not, it's not easy reading that you start from the beginning to end as you might with Genji. And so it, it, even though there was a translation, a superb one done by uh, William and Helen McCullough, published 1980, people ended up mining it more for uh, information about the Heian period and about that, that, that world of Murasaki Shikibu and Genji monogatari rather than really looking at it on its own terms. And that's maybe where the the neglect uh, came in, rather than the connection itself between Genji and Eiga Monogatari.
1: And just out of curiosity, um, do you see any other tales work from the medieval period that also fit into this um, exorcism of um, marginalized mm. spirit. Mm.
0: Yeah, and this is where, you know, I, I've actually, I think, in presenting my work, sometimes struggle because I don't have definitive proof, right? It's, it's, it, I don't have, unfortunately, any evidence about how Ega was understood at its, at, at, at its time. And there's not a lot of records about people reading the work and and, uh, appreciating it. So I'm I'm speculating to some degree, but I do actually uh, mention, for example, the heike monogatari, right? Which is obviously much later, and it's also understood to be a war tale. So the context is different, but that too is, I think, uh, much more readily accepted as placatory, as trying to appease the spirits of the defeated Heike clan, I also do think that um, the and, and in fact there is a review uh, recently published by Sonya Arntzen uh, on my book, and I'm it's actually um, I'm very flattered by her review. But she does mention an episode in Kagero Nikki that really puzzled her for a long time, and, and which featured the Anna incident and how uh, how the Kagero diarist actually does not mention many historical incidents, but she does mention that one and she expresses her uh, sympathies to the victims of this incident that were actually uh, created or fabricated. That incident was instigated by the Kagero diarist's husband uh, Fujiwara no Kaneie. So, uh, and, and, and professor Arntzen, I think it, it makes, uh, a, a, this link to what my argument in the, in my book. And she talks about how it would seem that women did have this uh, role to try to offer sympathies or to, to, to soften some, some of the machinations of their husbands but that, that the work of these wives and the women often had, Were complementary to and tried to soothe some of the bitterness and the fissures that the political, male political machinations uh, introduced into that world. So I think there are these kinds of distant evocations or equivalents uh, in the Heian world.
1: That's super interesting. Um, Do you plan to take uh, this current project further and to discuss more of these tales of the medieval period?
0: You know, I think I may be ready for a break, although uh, I'm not quite sure. I think I may have mentioned uh, just a little while ago that I was working more on representations of eating and food. Uh, and there is actually a tale that has long interested me that I met, and I mentioned this work, uh, the tale of the hollow tree, Utsuo Monogatari, which is actually a rather complicated <laughs> work because it's long and, and also a little messy, kind of like Ega Monogatari, I think. And so I've been looking more at that and the depictions there of food. And so I don't think I'll necessarily be moving entirely away from Monogatari but I am definitely still very much interested in the stories that people tell and and, and what motivates the nature of their stories and their choices in terms of language.
1: Well, that sounds great. And for our last question, uh, I always ask a, a big loaded question, mm. of course. Uh, but something you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation is that you're doing this interdisciplinary work Um, and um, I I guess I I assume from my own experience I think your book will benefit um, students and scholars both in studying history and literature but as you mentioned there's this barrier in institutions when it comes to uh, departments or major there's history and literature always separated and um in my own experience, there are, we have courses for these two disciplinaries or even other disciplines like um, sociology or anthropology, linguistic even. We have our individual system of how we do things. Um, what are your thoughts on this, um, I, this problem? And how do you think um, we can do better in the future to solve it?
0: Yeah, um it is a loaded big question and I don't know if I have any compact simple answer because I don't think there is one. But um yeah, and and I think, you know, part of the issue is that interdisciplinary uh interdisciplinariness um was hot at a certain point, I would say, or was, you know, if you look um at one point but in terms of jobs i think you're talking also about how just there are structural impediments and i think one of the structural impediments is that very often um we have to find positions in certain departments right and so that if you are truly interdisciplinary it's actually rather it, it's actually an uh, it, it it may feel like it's actually that That you're being trendy, but in fact it can be an impediment for your employment because you don't really fit either, there's a danger that you don't really fit either of the department's needs. Um, I actually was very privileged looking back although uh, it was a very long journey for me in that my first job um, as a visitor at Connecticut College um, there were Unfortunate things about my position, but there were also many, many silver linings. And one of them was, again, that I actually was teaching in the East Asian languages, uh, East Asian uh, um, literature, uh, East Asian cultures, East Asian studies program, as well as uh, the history, as well as in art history, too. So I was affiliated with three departments at Connecticut College. And I, I was actually allowed to teach whatever I wanted and, and, and however shape or form I wanted to, to do it. And in fact, I think undergraduates are very receptive and open to very uh, interdisciplinary approaches and they don't really think so much in terms of methodology or, or uh, what discipline their professor belongs in. So it really uh, didn't really matter for me. And I think that's why I was able to do the work I do in such a fluid way without being too preoccupied with uh, my methodology or where I stood in this disciplinary uh, spectrum. Uh, And perhaps, you know, especially now that we are in this COVID world of precarity, especially in academia, um, unfortunately, there may be less. On the one hand, there may be even more flexibility or we may be forced to do even more Right, we may be forced to 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 teach beyond our disciplines increasingly. On the other hand, there's going to be also lots of pressure to specialize, so that we can uh, get the few remaining jobs that are available, perhaps. So those are going to be some challenges. But I do think that maybe the way to resolve or to um, to to really. Um, it's going to be a multi-generational thing, but I think that as with each generation, with each uh, new dissertation and the ways that we are training the younger cohorts, that uh, it will be a gradual process. And I think we've already are seeing more and more. I think Professor Brightwell's book, my book, I think there are lots of works now that aren't necessarily obsessed with being interdisciplinary, but are very highly interdisciplinary actually. And so uh, I don't think it may be as big of a problem now as it was in the past. And I think uh, whether because of unfortunate circumstances uh, that we may be forced to even move further away from some of the uh, disciplinary limitations we've had before.
1: That's really good to hear, um, and I, I agree. I definitely agree, um, and I, I sure hope things get better. Well, I mean, it's it's not that bad right now. We are seeing so many interdisciplinary books, like you said. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, and, and yes, there's, I think, always, I think we need to be optimistic, uh, and so that that's, and, and, and there certainly is a lot of, I think, Reason to be optimistic.
1: Yes. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, this is so for our listeners. This is Jing Yi with Professor Takeshi Watanabe and his new book, Flowering Tales: Women Exercising History in Han Japan. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then. Goodbye.